Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be in Ephesians 6, continuing in our study of Paul's close to this great letter. We showed the videos, uh, Dave and I looked at uh, those this week, and thought they might add a little to your understanding of the city of Ephesus, just to see what it was like a little bit in that day. There's more of those available, by the way, um, uh, and, and there's also videos on all seven churches available uh, through Mars Hill, and you may want to take a look at those. Uh, they're, they're really well done, well produced. But as you can see, the city of Ephesus was a, was a massive city for the ancient world. It was one of the larger cities. It wouldn't be considered a massive city in our day. But, uh, but in their day, in, um, in, in their culture, it was the center of not only trade and culture, but of, in many ways of pagan religion. Um, their, uh, their worship was, uh, was very detailed and, and very pagan. They had, uh, they had a temple uh, to the goddess of love, and uh, it, was a, it was their very sexual cult that went on there in the city of Ephesus. And this is probably some of the spiritual warfare that Paul is referencing, even in this letter. And as I told you last week, I think it's still something we battle with in our day, is the spiritual warfare that surrounds us. And as I mentioned in verse 12, I don't see these as so much a hierarchy of spiritual beings. Some of you had questions about, then what do you think? Because then you went on to tell us that you do believe that each of these uh, does different things. And I, I do. I believe that, that what Paul is showing here is not classes as much as responsibilities. That there are in Satan's uh, control and under his leadership, demons, spirits, which war against us in specific areas of life. Whether it be in culture in thinking and in, 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 in uh, the, the media, whether it's, uh, whether it's in um, the, the authorities that rule over us, those who rule over um, provinces and different nations, as we saw last week, and I talked about there are nations that are darker in terms of the gospel uh, witness than, than you know, we are here in the West. We've been blessed with a great um, blessing of the gospel from our very foundations. And so... More than verse 12 showing us some hierarchy. These are the really bad guys, and these guys are lesser but still powerful. I see it, and I believe it's more correct to see it as, these are categories of spiritual attack, led by demons, led by spiritual forces into our life. And what we should see in verse 12 is that Satan is after us on every front. He never relents. He never backs away. And this is not a pitched battle so much as it is a guerrilla warfare. The pitched battle uh, phase of the war, in a sense, the, where the army of, 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 of Satan confronted God's purposes head on, that happened at the cross. Everything Satan had, he threw at God and His purposes in Christ on the cross. And it was under the direction of God the Father, it was planned down to the minutest of details by God the Father, carried out perfectly by God the Son, attended by the Spirit, and means for our salvation. It, it has resulted in our salvation. So what was the greatest uh, plan in Satan's uh, master plan to defeat Christianity actually gave it birth. 
What he thought would defeat God's purpose ended up carrying out God's purpose. The pitched battle ended there. He has nothing else. He lost decisively at the cross. So what has he done? He's gone into guerrilla warfare. Like I said, if you take the example of the United States and Iraq, we declared victory in Iraq years ago now. Years ago. But still today, there are pockets of resistance. And they're very real. And if the soldier on the battlefield lets down his guard even for a moment, then he's prone to fall under that attack as a soldier and to even give his life in the battle. And that's what we're facing in the age of the church. There is no hope. Now hear this clearly. There is no hope that Satan can win this war. It is not in doubt. He has lost. He has been defeated. The great stinger of death and the grave and sin have been placed into Christ and defeated through His resurrection, we're free from the ultimate uh, fear of loss. That can't happen. But you can lose individually. And that's what Paul is so quick to tell us. Now I want to set the scene further for you. As we go into the armor of God, I want to kind of uh, and, and talk about that over the next two or three weeks. I want to uh, help you understand, where is Paul when he's writing this? He's not on the uh, terrace of his hotel overlooking... Uh, uh, some seaport, uh, chilling as it may be, drinking a cup of coffee, relaxing. No, the apostle is writing this letter in chains. This is a prison epistle. He is under house arrest, and he is being guarded most likely by Roman guards. Now, how tightly he's being guarded is under debate. At times it appears he has great freedom. People are coming to visit him often. He's ministering to them. He's sharing the gospel. He's, he's, he's active and in, in, in we even know that some Roman soldiers came to Christ, we believe. Servants of Caesar came to Christ. So he had great liberty at times. But then at times it appears he's under more of a restraint. I believe in this, in this case that he's taking the example of the Roman armor as these soldiers are before him. He's got in his mind the spiritual idea from Isaiah, remember. Isaiah chapter Isaiah very clearly defines for us that God in Christ dressed himself as one arrayed for battle, an, a, a warrior. Our Savior is a warrior. He was wearing the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth even in that day. And so I do not discount that Paul is drawing from the Old Testament. But I also don't uh, miss the fact that probably he's looked up from his letter and there seated across from him or at the door or maybe next to him is a Roman soldier in his armor. And the, being the great teacher he is this, is, this is something the people of Ephesus would have been very familiar with. They would have seen Roman soldiers. And so he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, immediately grabs that example and says, I'm going to tell them what they need to fight the war they're in. They need armor. Just like this guy sitting here next to me. They need to be protected against the schemes of the devil. Because he's after them on every front. And so, he goes through six very specific pieces of the armor. There are other pieces of the Roman armor, but he focuses in on six. And so, we're going to jump in at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given, uh, uh, given by the gospel of peace. 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we have here in this, in this passage a detailing of the, what is necessary to win the individual and uh, everyday battle of the saint. This is the Christian life. Notice first of all that he says again, he repeats, that we're to stand. Now this is, he's repeated this over and over again. It is the overriding theme of this passage we might say. We are to stand firm. He says in to the Christians at Corinth, be careful, once you've taken your stand, that you don't fall. I mean, Paul is constantly concerned, readily concerned, always thinking about the fact that as individuals, we can fall. And some of you know exactly what I mean. You struggled with that this week, haven't you? And you know you'll struggle with that again next week. That if you let down your guard for a moment, it doesn't take long, does it? I mean, it's not like it has... I hear people talk sometimes as if it takes weeks for them to fall into sin if they let down their guard. They must be a different type of human than me. It doesn't take but a few seconds. You let down your guard, you let your mind wander, and all of a sudden, you're in sin. Whether it be from anger, whether it be from lack of patience, whether it be just an idle thought about someone else's wife or some other a person's job that you're coveting, you wish you had, or their possession, or whether it be an idle thought about God. That a misplaced, wrong, heretical thought about God. It happens in a moment, doesn't it? You let down your guard for just that one second, and that fiery dart seizes in your moment of weakness. So, we have to stand firm. Stand guard. Be ready. Always. Always. Be ready. And, and he says, how can you be ready? Take up the whole armor of God. That's the way you stand. It's nothing mystical going on here. Paul says, if you, if you want to win in your daily life as a Christian, if you want to fight victoriously every day, you have to have on the armor of God. Roman soldiers carried most of their armor with them everywhere they went. They wore it as their daily garb. There were pieces that were reserved for hand-to-hand combat and in the day of, of battle, but, but most of their armor was their daily uh, uh, clothes that they wore around in, in town. It, they were always in some way ready for the attack because it could have come at any moment, and they had to be ready. And so we have to be the same way. If you're going to stand, you stand in the whole armor of God, taking up the whole armor of God. And notice that it is the armor of God. It's not my armor. It's not your armor. And you don't get to individually pick what you like and what you don't like. I'll take this piece, but that's kind of cumbersome, Lord. We're going to get to that because I think that's one of the dangers we have. Very much so here at Grace and in our Christian circles. Is that we set aside certain pieces of the armor because they feel cumbersome to us. They feel weighty. They're hard. They're not easy. God doesn't give us that option. Paul says, this is God's armor. You take it up. The whole thing. Every moment of every day. You equip yourself fully for battle. You be ready because you're in a fight. Now, this is a fight that is going on whether you realize it or not. 
Notice that he says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now that's interesting to me, the way he phrases the evil day, because it's not in the plural. Other places, like Ephesians 5, verse 16, he makes the statement that the days are evil. Like there's this, there's this overall evilness that's in the world. But here, it seems more specific, doesn't it? Evil day. Now, we could take this as a reference to the last day. To the fact that when, before Christ comes again, there will be a crescendo of evil in the world. There will be a, a growing uh, opposition to the gospel. But I don't take it that way specifically, though that's true. I think what Paul's saying here is that all of us face an evil day. <clears throat> in other words, there is an event coming in your life. I guarantee it. I think the Apostle Paul is guaranteeing it. There is an event coming in your life that if you are not so equipped with the armor of God, when it comes, you will fall. It may be cancer. It may be the death of your wife. It may be divorce. It may be any number of things designed for your destruction. Coming from your enemy. Now, it's not without it being under the hand of God. Nothing comes on you that doesn't come through the hand of God and is part of His plan for your life. But if you live in ease, if you live, if I live, as if there is no war going on, when that evil day comes, we will fall. It's going to happen. We won't have any hope in that day of winning in this life the crown of glory in a sense, the, the, the ultimate personal uh, delivery from certain sins which seem to reign over us. You've got those sins, don't you? I mean, surely you know yourself enough to know what you're prone towards. I hope you know your heart that well. Because some, to one man is, there is a temptation, and to another, it's meaningless. You know, it's kind of like that old saying that uh, uh, one man's junk is another man's treasure. I think of that way in sin. What is a temptation to Aaron Acker may not be a temptation to Carlton Weathers. May not be a temptation to Dave Swinney. May not bother Barry Smith at all. You know, but then the things that really offend me and are, are dangerous to me as a person in Christ are not at all an offense or a bother to these brothers. All of us should know our heart well enough to know the schemes that most likely will be used to bring us down. The Achilles heel, so to speak. The thing that will destroy us if we give in and take off the armor of God and live at ease and at peace with ourselves and with the world. And the evil day will come. It, it, it's coming. And it's on us. There is, there is evil all around us all the time. But there is a day of attack coming in each of our lives which will put us to the very end of our faith. If you're not ready, if you're not fighting every day, you don't have a hope of fighting in that day. There won't be time for you to go get oil for your lamp. There won't be time for you to go get prepared. And for you to say, oh, I didn't know you were coming. I, I, I need to go get myself prepared. When that day comes, you will be ready or you will not. How do you get prepared? You take up the whole armor of God every day as if that's the day. This is the day that ultimately could be my demise if I'm not ready. And you train in such a way. 
If you talk to people who have been on the front lines of war, they tell you the most dangerous thing for a soldier to do is to become at ease with war. To begin to treat it as if it's just a normal day in his life. And believe it or not, one of my, one of my uh, childhood heroes in my church was a man named, uh, by the name of Brother Jack. And he fought in, in most of the major island campaigns in the South Pacific. He said, Carlton, it wasn't dangerous when we went on the beach. That wasn't when I was the most frightful. Because when we went on the beach, dead bodies were floating all around us. Bullets were flying everywhere. There wasn't time to be afraid. You just reacted. What scared me was once we had been on the island for a week, two weeks, and we were rooting out the enemy, that we would then begin to just sit around and talk and be frivolous and act like there wasn't any danger around us. That's what always bothered me. And, and listen, that's what Paul's saying. I believe, locked away in this prison. He's saying, Ephesus, don't fall asleep. Don't for a minute relax and think your enemy's not prowling like a lion to devour you. Put on the whole armor of God every day. The evil day is here. And it's coming on us. And it could be at any moment. So what is, what is the armor of God? I just want to look at two pieces today and we'll be done. Stand, therefore. The command again. Stand. You notice that's always the command in, in this part of Paul's letter. Stand. Stand. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. When William Grinnell, the great Puritan, taught on this passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, he has a book, they have a book now of his sermons, 2,000 pages. 2,000 pages. There's 261 chapters in the book. A chapter is a sermon. The man preached 261 sermons from these eight verses. When Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, taught this passage, he taught 52 sermons from these eight verses. I'm not going to do that. Not because I don't think you could, not because I don't think you might should or we might should, but because I think... And I've not read all of Grinnell's work, okay? I have read Lloyd-Jones's, and it is spectacular. But I think what can happen sometimes is we get so minute, we miss the overall point. Now, there's time for minute, and there's time for over. We're going to kind of give an overview over the next three weeks. You may think, gosh, Carlson's taking a lot of time on these verses. Just think it could be 261 sermons. It's only going to be three Four at the most, okay? So just hang in there. We're going to take these two today. What is, what does it mean when Paul says, having on the belt of truth? Wrapping yourself, fastening yourself in with the belt of truth. Jesus said in His prayer recorded for us in John 17 that His desire was that God would sanctify us, His people, with the truth. What is the truth? Your Word is truth. Okay, Jesus said in John 8 that if you have the truth, the truth shall set you free. The truth will make you free. No matter what your station in life, if you have the truth, you are free. You're a free man. In John chapter 1, John says that Jesus is full of grace and what? Truth. 
That's our word, truth. So when I see that we're to fasten ourselves with the truth, we're to fasten ourselves with the belief in, the conviction of, the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the word of truth, which sanctifies us and sets us apart and guards our very inner being. If we don't have right doctrine, we cannot hope to win the daily war against the evil one. That's how I see it. And it leads to ethical truth. Now, there's two, two things going on here. People argue over, and I think they waste a lot of ink arguing in my mind. And I, maybe one day I'll be shown to be wrong. This is not only doctrinal truth, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ and His Word, but it's then lived out in daily truth. We are truth-tellers. We live in a clear conscience knowing we are living by the truth. We're ethically living a life of truthfulness. So it, it does more than just what we rightly believe, but it comes out in what we say and what we think and how we fashion our life. We fasten it ourselves around the midwaist with the belt of truth. Very important part of the armor. We, we overlook it in our day, but the belt of truth, uh, the belt in the armor tied the whole armor together. It tied the top pieces of the armor to then the coverings of the leg, and it was also the holder for the weapon, the offensive weapon. We're going to get to the, the, the famous Roman sword. The Roman sword. Not only steal from that sermon, so I'll leave that. But the Romans revolutionized warfare in their day because they, they used the sword differently. It was a, what we see here is the statement that this this belt of truth ties together everything else. Without the belt of truth, you cannot be sanctified. Without Christ and the doctrine of truth, you cannot hope to stand. What will you stand on? That would be the question Paul would ask. And why are you standing if you don't have the truth? If you don't know the truth, you're not standing. You can't hope to win. And you don't have the rest of the armor of God. So, here, this what seems to be insignificant, this belt is very significant. It is what ties together the Christian life. It is the glue that holds it in place. It's the truth that makes all the difference. It's what we're standing for. And, he says then, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, a great debate in the literature. If you go read any commentary, there's all kinds of ink spilt over whether this is the imputed righteousness of Christ that Paul's talking about, or whether this is the personal righteousness of the believer. I think it's a waste of time. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it's both. I mean, can we not see that what he's saying here is that if 2 Corinthians 5 is not true of you, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Because why? Because Christ has been made sin for those who were not, I mean, made sin because of those who were sinners. He wasn't a sinner, but he became sin. He put on sin. He took our unrighteousness, and then in exchange for that, he gave us his righteousness. So that then becomes the groundwork for Hebrews chapter 12. And this is uh, an important point for our congregation. I want you to hold your place in Ephesians, turn to Hebrews 12. Because I think. And this is what I was referencing earlier when I said, we often want to take off pieces of the armor. 
Righteousness is one of those pieces. That's the fear for me with, with our kind. Is that we're daily not concerned with the righteousness of the breastplate. Hebrews chapter 12 is, is beginning in verse 7. The writer says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. You see that? That sharing His holiness, that is uh, given to us by Christ. We have Christ's holiness. We have Christ's righteousness. The righteous became unrighteous so that the unrighteous might be made righteous. The great transaction has occurred, okay? But he doesn't stop there. And so many of us stop reading right there. I'm holy. Christ is holy and I'm holy. For the moment, all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now something different has started to happen. We have the righteousness of Christ, and now it's yielding the fruit of what? Righteous action. You can claim to have the righteousness of Christ all day long. But if there's no righteousness practically coming out of your life, then you must go back and question whether you have the righteousness of Christ. If there's no obedience, fruit of obedience and holiness, then do you have the righteousness of Christ or not? Righteousness of Christ, in I'm going to give away my point here, righteousness in Christ the, the, the objective righteousness of Christ is an internal thing. But the breastplate which we wear, I believe, is the righteousness that is the fruit of that internal righteousness. It is our righteousness. It is our obedience which Paul is telling us to put on. The righteousness of Christ is a given. We are Christians. We are children of God. We have received the righteousness of Christ. That internal thing then brings forth the righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. Alright? Look, let's keep going. If he keeps going in the passage here, he then says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not, may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive, work hard for, strain for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. Be careful that you don't find the breastplate of righteousness to be cumbersome and set it off. This is not Saul's armor. Paul is not saying it's too hard for you to be good and be righteous and be obedient, so just don't worry about it. If you hate to take that attitude, when the evil day comes in your life, you'll be destroyed. And what it will give evidence to is you never had internal righteousness. 
you never really had the righteousness of Christ. You never were a child of God. Because all the children of God produce fruit. There are no non-fruit producers. You must, we must together strive to be holy as God is holy. And I say this very straightforwardly. That's the concern I have for my life and for your lives. And for that matter, for the new Reformed camp, the, the new Calvinism, the, 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 however, the young, restless, and Reformed group, whatever you want to label it, okay? That's my concern for the whole movement. Is that we're not enough focused on obedience. We're, we're caught up in freedom for freedom's sake. We can do anything because we're saved. And we have grace. And meanwhile, the writer of Hebrews is saying, strive for peace with every man and for the holiness without which no one will see God. We need to be careful, Grace Fellowship. We all need to examine our life. Have we set aside the righteousness which God has called us to? We just set it aside and said, that's kind of cumbersome. That feels legalistic. That's a restraint. I don't like it. My youngest... She, she is a handful. So I asked her the other day, do you, I was told her, I said, she's the child of mine that is a handful. I, the others, no problem. Her, problem. If we give ten spagans a week, she gets nine and a half. She's just a handful. And her famous saying, when I say, hope, don't do that, she looks at me and says, I like it. I like it. We're doing that with God a lot. The Spirit is witnessing to our conscience. Don't do that. And our answer is, I like it. We need to be careful that we don't set aside the call of the Scripture to obedience. And that we don't think that our freedom means we're free to just live how we choose. There's things that we're not going to like much and there's things we're going to like much which we can't have and we must in our pursuit of the daily battle realize that when we rise from our bed in the morning Romans 6 must be on our mind I think Romans 6 fits this passage the breastplate of righteousness perfectly why because it says don't be slaves any longer to the lust of the flesh but rather be slaves to God and righteousness. What does it mean to be a slave to the flesh? It means to do what you like in your nature. To just do it. Because it feels good. Because it meets your momentary need. And because it satisfies your desire for the moment. That's what it means to be a slave to the flesh. Paul says, in the breastplate of righteousness, because we have that internal Christ-given righteousness imparted to us by Him, we can now live a righteous life which will protect us in the day of evil attack. Why do I land on the practical side rather than the theological side if you want to divide it that way, that's fine. Why do I land on this righteous breastplate being fruit, not Christ's righteousness? Because as I see it, the victory's won. Christ has won that. Paul wouldn't be led, uh, telling us 
to take up the righteousness of Christ. We have that. That's not what he's talking about. It can't be. That doesn't make sense to me as I study it. What does make sense to me is if you dabble and dilly in worldly things all your Christian life, don't be surprised when the scheme of Satan comes against you and you're destroyed because you haven't got the breastplate of righteousness. You haven't, you haven't been practicing, developing your skill, working hard at your craft, being like your father, being like your older brother, following the older brothers in the faith around you. You haven't been doing that. You've been lazy in personal regard. And so when the attack comes, you're already giving yourself into that. You're already doing that. How can you practically fight? And that's where I want to close. How can we take this practically and apply it today? Tell yourself no often. How can I take up the breastplate of righteousness? Tell yourself no often. There's no other way. Discipline. I'm going to put it on this analogy, all right? So the chocolate pie is in the middle of the plate. Tape. Now I know everybody groans. Oh, here he goes. But this one just hits everybody. Okay, if you don't like chocolate, pecan, peach, apple, whatever your flavor is, everybody's got a sweet they love. Put it in your mind. Children, Put it in your mind. you got to develop the discipline that when you crave that thing, you say no to it. Can I have a piece of pie? Absolutely. Will it kill me? No. Will it taste good? Yes. And is it okay to have one once in a while? Absolutely. But if you slide into having it every time you want it, it will eat you alive. You won't be eating it. It'll be eating you. Right? Alcohol? To drink or not to drink? I can't answer that question for you. But I can tell you this. If you drink every time you want to drink, it's controlling you. You're not controlling it. To have sex or not have sex? If you partake in sex, however you want, whenever you want, it's, it's having you. You're not having it. If there's no boundaries, if there's no holiness in the bed, it's defiled, you don't have the breastplate of righteousness. And so if you're defiling your marriage bed, don't be surprised when you're in bed with the secretary. Don't be shocked. Why? Because you never put on the breastplate of righteousness. You too much lived in the world of everything's okay. No. Everything may not be off limits for me, but everything may not be helpful to me. So I'll leave that alone. That's what Paul would say. That's what he's trying to urge to Ephesus is to say, listen, wrap yourself in truth. Tie yourself together. That's the glue that will hold you when nothing else will is Christ, His Word, and the foundation of doctrine. But do not fall asleep at the wheel. You must be righteous. You must live every day as if, it, if, as if Christ is in front of you and you're living it in Him and for Him and through Him for His glory. Be one with this breastplate.